Thank you for joining me for another episode of Empire Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I am joined by Daniel Jalka. Daniel, thank you so much for coming back on again. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's been two years since we've had you on. You're the host of the Core Intuition podcast, developer of Red Sweater software. And I guess you, I'll let you go ahead and list the apps you have out and uh, what else you're known for. Well, the main app I work on as an indie developer is Mars Edited, a blog editing app for the Mac. And it's sort of a, usually describe it as like a mail, as mail.app is to your mail, Mars Edit is to your blog posts. So it basically just makes it nicer to write blog posts on your Mac. I also have a crossword app, which is pretty popular in the sort of crossword, the community of people who like to solve crosswords, not in a web browser. It's called Black Ink been actually working on Black Ink for iOS in recent years, maybe sort of inching finally towards releasing that on iOS. So that'll be my first sort of substantial iOS app when that's done. And then uh, I got a little, uh, you know, foot into each genre of app. So I have a, a scripting utility called Fast Scripts. It's kind of, uh, again, popular within a niche group of people, but the people who really want to be able to run scripts conveniently with shortcuts, uh, keyboard shortcuts, it's kind of a popular app. Uh, That's mainly it uh, these days. And then as you mentioned, I do the Core Intuition podcast with my friend Manton Reese. And other than that, I think people sort of know me as just kind of, oh, you know, over the years, I've been at times more prolific than I am now with my blogging, try to share Things I discover, write up, write up uh, technical things and other things on various blogs. Um, <laughs> so I'm really spread all over the place, but I just like to keep learning things. And uh, I don't limit myself exclusively to Apple's platforms in the sense that, you know, I work on some web-based stuff. I run my own, uh, I write my own web stuff for my site. And sometimes I work on WordPress uh, stuff related to Mars Edit, but Mostly I just like Apple's stuff, so I keep uh, trying to learn more about how to be a developer in general and how to get better at at uh, making apps on Apple platforms. So I may as well ask, you did end up buying a 13 Pro, right? And yes. Series 7 Apple Watch, which that's even sounds like an even massive upgrade from your Series 3. Have you got anything yet? Yeah, I've gotten the iPhone 13 Pro. I got that on the quote-unquote day one. I managed to get my order in in time. As far as I know, you can't order the um, the watch yet, the Series Seven. So I haven't ordered that, but I think it's uh, I think it's in the cards that I will finally upgrade. I'm not ordering anything this year. I'm going to hold off because I'm kind of like hoping that they add a bunch of stuff in the 14 that I'm kind of looking for, and I really love my 11 Pro Max. But yeah, you're you're a user of the Apple Watch. So what have you found like the biggest advantages or what do you like the most about the Apple Watch and what makes you looking forward to the Series 7? Yeah, I've been a fan of the Apple Watch since pretty much day one, even in spite of its diminishing shortcomings. Yeah, but even the very first one, I was just so impressed by the ability to do things as simple as get notifications on my wrist to to be able to leave the phone in my pocket was often convenient. You know, I'm a pretty avid runner, so little things like being able to respond to a text from my wife when I'm 
running without having to take out the phone out of my pocket. Those have been valuable since day one. And then I've often described to people who aren't watch fans, I describe it as like a bunch of different features, each one of which would probably not be enough to totally sell me on the device. But when you take them in sum, it's just a great uh, enhancement. So those it, those advantages off the top of my head, things that I really I really appreciate about the watch, even if I think they might be able to be done better, are dictating messages to people, dictating reminders to myself, dictating alarms, Apple Pay. I I almost exclusively use my watch for Apple Pay because the fact that I don't even have to take my my phone out of my pocket just makes it so simple. So yesterday I was taking my four-year-old out for lunch and uh, I was like, okay, you brought cash with you, right? To buy all this stuff, you know, just either. Right. Yeah. He's, he's like, no, you got, how are you going to pay for it? He's like, I don't know. And then I like inconspicuously put my Apple watch up to the thing and, you know, did a little ding thing. And I was like, what happened? How did we pay for it? Right. Yeah. It was pretty <laughs> hilarious. Cause he's like, he just assumes you need, you need cash money for it. Cause he's a little yeah. guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's really convenient when you have that set up. Yeah, that's you know, so that's one thing. And if I just if I keep thinking about it, I keep remembering other things that are great about it. Like, um, you know, I do use the uh, unlock my um, Mac feature. So you know, when you walk near your Mac, it it unlocks the Mac. And do you have a LTE watch or just a regular? Do you just use Wi Fi? I just use Wi-Fi, but I do have the LTE watch. Okay. But way back, this is a Series 3, and I think it was the first edition yeah, that it came was. with. And at the time, the deal added up to where, like, I wanted a specific wristband that only came with the LTE version by default. And so anyway, if I was going to get the non-cellular version, I would have paid about 30 bucks less. And at the time, also, Verizon was doing promotion where you got three months free of um, cell phone or cell access. And I really didn't think it was going to be for me, but I thought that's the opportunity to give it a try. So yeah, yeah, I gave it a try and it's true after three months. I mean, I almost always have my phone with me and that's not an, it's not an impediment to me. Right. Right. But something I don't think a lot of people know about the, uh, the cellular watches that I take some comfort in having it even without a plan is I think it's the law in the United States, at least you right, have to for be, emergency calls. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I appreciate having that, you know, if I do ever get stuck in a situation where my phone's not working or available, I, I imagine it's like, you know, if I get stranded out on a, mm-hmm. on a lake or something, right. That would be nice. Yeah, if it's if it's within range. That was the demo too when they first shut it off. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. I actually I so I have a series six and I'm gonna stick with that. But I also have actually the series three LTE mm. without a plan. Um right. but yeah, it's I could see that watch is pretty much my sleeping watch. So like Oh yeah. <laughs> or or developer testing watch, like, but most of the time I'm wearing this the series six. So and I love that. Like, that's an awesome watch. So, yeah, I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing how the screen sizes are going to make things better. Yeah, and I think I'm going to get, um, I've always had this, uh, I guess it's whatever the larger of the th- Series 3. Oh, yeah, 40, yeah, yeah. 44, 42, whatever. 42, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get the uh, smaller one. 
this time because... And that's 41, I believe. I don't know. But the smaller one, I've come to come to decide with the watch, I really don't need to touch it that much. So right. I'm excited to have a, a, lo- a smaller profile. And then I think with the uh, improvements they've made, the screen might be almost as big as the screen on my larger watch. No, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it used to be 38 and 40 and then it moved up to now it's 41, 45 are the two sizes. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I could see how you don't need like the bigger size. So let's get into the Mac. Sure. What are you looking forward to? And, you know, assuming we have an October event, what device are you, Mac device, are you most looking forward to in the next coming months, I guess? Or what are you looking at upgrading? Yeah, well, I think like a lot of developers, we have our, you know, the the classic developer Mac for the past many years has been the 15-inch MacBook Pro. Right. And I think, I think that Apple's going to sell a lot of 15-inch MacBook Pro with an M whatever, you know, right. the, whatever the Apple Silicon MacBook Pro with 15-inch screen or more is going to instantly sell to a lot of us waiting now. I mean, I've only had, I, I have this Intel, I bought it only a year or two ago. It's one of the newer, like, you know, they fixed the keyboard type Intel MacBook Pro. And it's a great computer, but, and I bought it thinking, you know, it was before any of the M1 Macs had come out. And I thought, I really don't know how this is going to play out. It might be nice to have like the best possible Intel MacBook Pro that you can get. And then just ride out, ride out this, you know, and, and also thinking like, well, maybe I'll want to have a real Intel Mac around for a while. Maybe I'll need it for VMware, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I might, at this point, I think I might be ready to just find a new new way to do everything I occasionally need to do with, you know, Windows or Intel. Um, it, it kind of starts to feel silly to me that I'm orienting my Mac purchase strategy around running a Windows like once a month these days or whatever it is. So I might just get like a, if I need to run Windows, it's also funny, I spend like a hundred and whatever dollars a, a year on um, VMware updates. And I don't know, I might keep getting VMware because it's so, so valuable even for Mac stuff. But, but you know, I might just get, if I need to run, it's funny that it never really occurred to me. Like I could just get a super cheap Windows PC, you know? It's okay, I'm allowed to buy one. It's not like I- Get a Dell, <laughs> build it yourself yeah. for under 300 bucks. Yeah, right. Right, yeah. And so I might do something like that. But um, no, I think like everybody, all the other developers anyway, we're just looking forward to it seeming like everyone's sort of expecting now, I think, some kind of a MacBook Pro 15-inch with the new chips. And if honestly, even if it's not like a huge improvement over the um, the Air and the, Mac, the 13-inch MacBook Pro that they're selling, those have been delightful to people. Like yeah. some many developers have switched to 13-inch just so... They could have the privilege of using those those chips, and I think they could almost just sell one of those with a bigger screen, and it would be enough for me to to get on board with that. Yeah, so I have I have my iMac 2019 that I'm on uh, right now, and then I bought a MacBook Air, the M1 MacBook Air, and I absolutely love it. And I was like, I'm not one of the people who to like. I understand if you have one machine, you might want like a MacBook Pro, but 
I have two machines. So like my powerhouse is the iMac and then my portability is the MacBook Air and then I'll like switch depending on what I'm working on. But like Xcode runs fine on the MacBook Air. It's like a big enough screen and it's super portable and light. I love the battery life. Like I don't have to take a charger anywhere I go practically. Like it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I pretty much have it like docked at home on the charger. But like when I go out, I just I don't bring a power cable with me and it's fantastic. It's it's great. So, yeah, I'm interested to see, like, I'm kind of in the same boat where I'm, I could see myself getting an Apple Silicon iMac, but, like, I'm interested to see how these power, like, the really powerful Macs are going to be when it, because I start to do, I've started to do it, like we talked about, you know, before recording, I do a video, so I run Final Cut Pro, I run Compressor, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of power I can get out of that with those, those apps and, like, chugging away at Xcode and things like that, so... I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's going to feel stunning to, to upgrade. So I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I'm spending a lot of money this year, so, but, uh, you know, maybe that'll inspire me to make some more money. I don't know. That's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> Just tell yourself that. <laughs> yeah. You really need to make some more money. <laughs> I had you on like two years ago and we talked about a lot of stuff back then. I think that was right after WWDC 2019 and there was all the new stuff with Catalyst, which I, I was looking at the notes and it was like Marzipan. I remember that name. And, uh, and Swift UI was the big announcement. I mean, it sounds like to me, like your opinion has changed quite a bit on how much you see with Swift UI. Cause I feel like you were like really enthusiastic about Swift UI. Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like that opinion is, have you been more dampered, I guess, than that enthusiasm over the years? I guess so. It's funny because whenever I sit down again to try to like learn, to be honest, I haven't learned that much about uh, Swift UI. I really thought after the first presentation and I first went through the tutorial, I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this because this is fun. And it is fun and it continues to be fun. Every time I sit down to play with Swift UI, I have fun. I enjoy that way of programming. But it's a little, it's reminding me quite a bit of the first couple years of Swift, where I also, when I first saw Swift, I thought, this is fun, new language. I liked a lot of things about the language. And there were just, at especially the first year of Swift, there were deal breakers, like as a, you know, long-term Mac developer who had existing code bases to support. Like if I think back to the first release of Swift, if I'm remembering right, it couldn't even like dynamically message Objective-C. Everything had to be compiled in. It was like really, it was a mess. And so I thought, you know what? This is a great language, but there's no way I can get distracted with this right now. And I feel like Swift UI, I'm in a few, as you know, uh, we're in some slacks in common, some developer slacks. I stay in the Swift UI channels mostly to try to like absorb something through osmosis, but also what I've absorbed through osmosis is the relentless anguish of people trying to do what sound like simple things. And I don't know how much of that is people trying to sort of put the round peg through the square hole, but it seems like it's more frustrating than it will be in a couple years. Uh, and I am a little disappointed that it hasn't advanced faster. It's funny, when we did talk a couple years ago, I think I was also pretty down on Catalyst. 
And I'm still down on Catalyst. I just don't think it's a great solution. So I'm not surprised to see how Catalyst is sort of, I think, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not that experienced with it and haven't used it much, but I'd say it's fairly languishing. So like just a couple of things I'm thinking is like, yeah, with someone like you, you've been doing AppKit how many years? Oh, I guess, you know, well, 20 years. Yeah. Okay. And I think, like, for someone like you who's so adept at AppKit and being able to do so much, like, SwiftUI is like a straitjacket. Like, I don't have a lot of experience with AppKit, but I love building Mac apps, um, and I've been doing some stuff with SwiftUI. But, like, when I look at an AppKit app and I'm like, oh, I want to design it like that. It's like, like you said, it's like putting a square peg in a round hole. It's an uphill battle to, like, really, like, build something that looks app kitty app kitty yeah right <laughs> uh but like and, and and that's like kind of the feeling i get is like like building a mac app in swift ui like i love the paradigm i love the mvvc stuff i love that like over mvc but like like yeah like getting the design and getting that behavior that feels macy that me that feels app kitty it's like an uphill battle with swift ui because I don't want to go so far as to say it's like an afterthought to build a Mac app in Swift UI because they definitely want like they're trying to like move in that direction, but it definitely feels like iOS is the first class citizen and like Macs are like second class, well third yeah. class because you know the other thing we're talking about Apple Watch like on Apple Watch like Swift UI is such a big improvement over WatchKit. I that's the one OS where I'm like this I don't feel like I'm losing anything by going to Swift UI. It just makes totally more sense and it's more dynamic and easier to build and it has more stuff with it. I want to thank the sponsor of today's episode Revenue Cat. RevenueCat makes it easy for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases and subscriptions, whether on iOS, Android, or the web. There's no server code required. With a few lines of code, get in-app purchase infrastructure, analytics, and integrations without managing servers. Check out their YouTube channel, which is linked below, if you want more details on how to get started once you've signed up. They also have some great reporting tools that automate and be able to look at some of the analytics with your subscribers and subscriptions customer lists, filters, and segments. If you're going to do anything with in-app purchases, then this is definitely the way to go. Check out revenuecat.com for more details, or like I said, their YouTube channel in the link below. It's the go-to for getting in-app purchases set up in your app and being able to give you the time you need to focus on your app. Thank you, RevenueCat, for sponsoring today's episode. So I totally understand your pain. Like I, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, I think, you know, the fact that as far as I understand it, the watch was maybe the inspiration for... I think it's where it came out of. Yeah, totally. And so it makes sense that the framework would match. It's like there's there's no impedance mismatch between yep. the watch experience and what the framework can provide. Uh, and then I think, yeah, as you go, as you step away from that, you get to iOS and maybe it can do a lot of what you want, but not everything. And then you get to Mac and it's like, well, it can do some of what, what you want. And it's it's one of those technologies that can be a little bit dangerous from a developer point of view in the sense that it, it can lure you in with the promise of doing more than it does because it makes great demos. And so you can make a demo of, yeah, if you want to make this like list of items that you can scroll 
great. That's a really good, <laughs> you know, that's a really good thing you can do. But then, um, you know, nobody asks the questions about what, whether it can do X, Y, and Z until the, um, the design comes up, you know, the, well, we need to do this. And well, how do you do that? Well, I don't know. Uh, the Apple demo didn't cover that. So, uh, and, and, you know, I think Apple's response to this is reasonable, which as I understand it to a great extent, they just recommend using the sort of mix and match abilities of Swift UI. But where that leaves you is you still need to know AppKit really well. That's exactly it. Yeah. Cause like, I was trying to replicate the Xcode interface a little bit and like the dialogue box where you select what type of project you want. And like, I had to like learn, I basically had to bring in, bring in the, uh, is it NS page view controller, like into my Swift UI app. And then I had to use whatever it is, NS representable. You know what I'm talking about where you want it to, to build in Swift UI. And it was just like, now I got to learn all the stuff in AppKit, which is like trying to avoid doing, but I know, I know it's like an uphill battle, but yeah, my hope is like, what I want is like more of a cohesion and we'll get into this, but like of like the redesign, this like redesign that we've been going through with Mac OS visually and like Swift UI. So that way I'm building interfaces in Swift UI that are more like friendly to that new design rather than feeling like I'm building an iOS interface in Mac OS, which looks hideous, quite frankly, because I have all these Swift UI controls that like Luke, we said, like Mac is kind of an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I think it's Swift UI is exciting in part because it's so audacious in its ambition to, to actually cover these disparate platforms as effectively as it does. And it's like, that's quite a promise. And that kind of promise makes it intrinsically exciting, but it also sets you up for disappointment. You know, I mean, it's like, well, will this be the first framework that actually like solves cross-platform development in a in like a in a consistent high level aesthetic way that like meets apple's standards well if anyone's going to do it it's probably going to be apple but it's not a guarantee because if you know if it was easy to do apple would have done it 20 (laughs) years ago you know right so uh we'll see so is most of your new app development do you do swift or do you still do a lot of objective c I'm always reminded, uh, so if I have a new class, it will definitely be in Swift. Okay. And then if I'm going in for a quick fix, I often start to write it in Objective-C and I kind of have to rely on, um, I have a little bit of like an internal rule that if I write more than a couple lines of Objective-C, I try to think like how how hard would it be for me to pull this out into Swift? So I have a little bit of a patchwork approach a lot of my Objective-C files uh, have a counterpart Swift file that might just have a couple methods in it, in it that augments the Objective-C. And then uh, as I move more and more stuff into the Swift side of things, I might eventually, I've been using a strategy where I, I create a new, oh, I rename the old Objective-C class. So let's say I have... Um, Say I'm talking about like black ink and I have a puzzle window controller. So I might rename that Objective-C class puzzle window controller legacy and then make a new puzzle window controller dot Swift. 
And all it does is inherit from Puzzle Window Controller Legacy, but it gives the new Swift class at that point all of the full-fledged abilities of a class. Whereas, you know, the first few things I add, it might be stuff you can just add as a new method. And that, with uh, with the Swift extension terminology, that's easy. You just add an add, and you can extend an Objective-C class easily. There's sort of something I've learned over the past several years of gradually switching to Swift, which is, well, you can't subclass a Swift class in Objective-C. So you have to make sure your your um, approach goes the other direction. So like you can't you can't swoop in and say say you have like a red sweater view that like all of your views inherit from. You can't swoop in and say it's time to change red sweater view into a Swift class because none of those Objective C classes can inherit from that. If I'm remembering correctly, I think that's right. And so the the deal is you have to kind of work converting to Swift. You have to go for the leaf nodes of the inheritance tree, so to speak. So you want, so because Swift can inherit from anything Objective-C. So you can go down and make... Is it like an NS object limitation? Like if your class doesn't derive from an NS object, you don't have access to it in Objective-C? Well, no, because the Swift classes that I'm referring to do inherit from an NS object. I'm not really sure off the top of my head why the limitation is there, but... I think it doesn't work. So anyway, you kind of get a, you have to get a feel like if you're adding a couple class methods here and then as soon as you need to add an instance variable, you are then struck with this like okay, do I want to add the instance variable to the objective C file or do I want to now pull this stunt with the make it into two classes. So it's kind of a I ended up with this patchwork now where sometimes I get a little confused because I'll, I'll go to look at a class and I'll be like, well, where is this method? Oh, right. It's in the Swift side of things or it's in the Objective-C side of things. And I have to just sort of, you know, for so, for many of my classes now, I have to consult two files. But if it's a simple enough class, usually I'll get to the point where there's only like two methods left in Objective-C, which just move them all over. Then you get rid of the legacy class. Um, yeah. So, you know, slowly but surely I'm, Sometimes I'm impressed when I look around my code bases. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I wrote all this Swift code. But, you know, it's it's not just a pure translation when I do it. It's an opportunity to sort of play around with, fix any mistakes I, I, I thought I made the first time with the class's design, take advantage of any new features yep. that Swift gives yep. me. And often, you know, it's, one, it's a nice exercise because often the Objective-C methods just become a lot smaller with with swift i mean uh, the ways that you can write swift more i think more sort of expressively pays off in that respect so yeah like one of the things i've started doing when i'm doing migration is like there's a lot there was a lot of stuff that was added to objective c like at the end that kind of piggybacked off of what swift does like generics and uh, what's the other thing? But just like marking stuff as like n- whether they're not nullability. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then like that's kind of my first step towards like migrating that type over. And then like you said, I like try to whenever I convert stuff over, I try to write the Swift stuff strictly in a Swift way. And then what I might do is create like an in-between Swift type that like allows communication between the objective C and Swift. So that way I'm not writing my Swift handicapped, I guess. So that way it's like taking advantage of Swift fully. And then if there's stuff that 
Objective C needs access to, then I can start tossing in my add Objective C and making things derive off the NS object and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I I'm in the same boat where it's like slowly but surely, but you just kind of want to take advantage of the Swift stuff when you can. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. The extent that I can, it's, I, it's turned out to be a pretty good compromise as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, maybe in contrast to the way. Swift UI, as I said, doesn't appeal to me as much because it doesn't afford me the ability to sort of like hit the ground running. The compromises as they stand now with Objective-C and Swift sharing a code base, I think are pretty good. Like, you know, it's it's all backwards compatible. You can ship the fact that Apple gave us that opportunity. Well, the, the necessity for years to ship the Swift runtime libraries with the apps meant that you could always back deploy to fairly old systems. These are all things you can't do the same way with Swift UI. So it was easy to start accepting Swift and using it wherever I could uh, as soon as I was willing to bundle these Swift libraries, which was pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, totally. So one of your apps, I think it's Black Ink. You're taking it off of the Mac App Store. Not Black Ink, Fast Scripts. Sorry, Fast Scripts. Okay. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. What's that's okay, yeah, yeah, because Black Ink is iOS, Fast Scripts is Mac App Store. Black Ink is also sorry. I'll just keep I'll just keep fine tuning the uh, what you say until it completely satisfies me. Um, Black Ink, <laughs> no, please do. Black Ink is not um, iOS. It is Mac. It is a Mac app that I have in progress for iOS. Got you. Okay, but all of my apps currently are in the Mac App Store. Uh, except for with the exception of this one little hack app. And that includes Fast Scripts, which includes Black Ink. Black Ink is in the back app store. Mars Edit, Fast Scripts, a couple apps I didn't mention, FlexTime and Clarion, all in the Mac app store. I also sell all of these apps outside of the Mac app store. Okay. Now, the um, the thing with Fast Scripts, uh, well, or I guess the thing to know about all of my apps is they have all been in the Mac App Store since before Apple introduced sandboxing, application sandboxing. So a little time machine here. Way back when, I guess it's about 10 years ago now, Apple announced the Mac App Store. And it was great because, you know, at that time it had been a few years since they announced the App Store for iOS and people were kind of wondering, like, what about the Mac? Well, I jumped right in, got all my apps into the Mac App Store, and then about a year later, Apple announced the application sandbox for the Mac. And, you know, now people just take it for granted because it's it's been the, the rule now for, I guess, nine years that all apps in the App Store have to be sandboxed. Uh, and just a, just a quick summary of what sandboxing is, it basically just imposes limitations on what the app can do. It kind of brings the iOS model of you can't do anything outside of your container to the Mac. And there are a lot more exceptions on the Mac for a good reason, but there aren't enough exceptions to accommodate every kind of app. So actually an app like Black Ink, the crossword app, it's easily accommodated by the sandbox because what you use it for is to download data, keep it in a container, work on it, print it, whatever. Those are things that can be accommodated with the sandbox. The Fast Scripts app is in the App Store because when Apple introduced the Sandbox, they said, okay, everybody, you got like a year to, I don't remember what it was. You have a few months to 
to keep shipping stuff. And then you got to switch to the uh, sandbox. Well, and then they said, well, okay, fine. Um, if you have a sandboxed app, you don't have to sandbox it as long as you're just fixing bugs. Okay, that's fine. And then I think what happened is I kind of like towed the line for long enough that maybe there's nobody even at Apple that knows that there's any unsandboxed apps in the App Store. But yeah, FastGrip is a weird example of an app in the App Store that you can download and run on your Mac that technically has the power to do anything at once within the realm of like, you know, what your user has the right to do. It uses Apple Script, right? Like basically yes. underneath the hood. Okay. It, well, it runs Apple Scripts as its main right, um, right. functionality. So, but but um also in order to do that, it wants to have like free access to um, reading script files from your home directory and all these things that that power users expect it to do for them. I've dealt with Apple Script. It's like not nah, easy to do a sandbox app with Apple Script. Yeah. So anyway, long story short is I could, I think, keep updating because, you know, like at first, like I said, they said you could only fix bugs. I don't know if anybody even knows what that means anymore <laughs> with respect to this limitation. But here's the thing. The reason I'm taking it out of the App Store is I'm charging an upgrade fee. And the easiest or sorry, I wouldn't even say easiest. The most reasonable way to charge upgrade fees on the Mac App Store is same as it would be on iOS is to come up with a new a new SKU, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have great app 1.0 and you want to charge people 10 bucks to upgrade to great app 2.0 it's not real straightforward to do that with the same SKU in the app store so what you do is you add a new product to the app store great app 2.0 and then the trick is the trick that i've used uh some other developers have used is you can use the fact that the customer purchased the previous app to unlock a discount so anyway that's all fine and good, but here's the bottom line is I don't think, even though I've been shipping this app for 10 years now, unsandboxed, I don't think Apple's going to let me add a new fast scripts <laughs> <laughs> and just say, by the way, I want to keep not sandboxing. So. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no. So I, I wanted to ask about like the, one of the big features to Mac OS, because you're, you obviously know a bit of an Apple script is like shortcuts like do you think that's kind of like the future of apple script more or less um it's really so it's hard to have any confidence in anything that is quote unquote the future of <laughs> apple script after we just talked the about swift ui <laughs> for a half an hour yeah right yeah yeah well it, it's just uh i mean it's just become a thing where apple was so impressive in the 90s when they introduced apple script and it frankly just allowed automation workflows that nobody had been able right. to achieve. The fact is it like introduces a really cohesive like object model for how apps can interact with each other and share different duties. And that was so impressive. And then they just dropped the ball at some point and it just hasn't been updated. You know, there was, there was a sub substantial update a few years ago but it just felt like it was somebody's last hurrah. Like somebody was like, okay, well, if we're not going to work on this anymore, let me at least ship this stuff that I've you know, had on my corner of my hard drive for the past <laughs> 10 years. Um, and so 
the fact is, we've already been through this once before with technology called Automator, which is already on your Mac. You've had it on your Mac ever since. Most of uh, most people who have a Mac, they've had it on their Mac ever since they've had a Mac. It's at least at least 10, 15 years old. And Automator is probably, to be honest, was one of the inspirations for what became shortcuts on the on iOS, which was workflow, right? Right, right. I don't know that for sure, but it's a very automator-like experience. Yes. The idea of modular kind of automation units that you can chain together in a graphical way. So we've already got that on the Mac, and it's been threatening for 15 years to be the future of AppleScript on the Mac, uh, but it never really... It never really took off. So I'm always optimistic when Apple invests anything into new automation technologies. So I'm optimistic about shortcuts, but I'm also skeptical because it just it seems like the kind of thing that they could put enough work into to have a great debut. One of those Apple classic great debut that demands a 2.0 and a 3.0 and a 4.0, but never gets them. Yes. And that's the risk is, you know, sometimes Apple comes out with something new and amazing that they do follow up on and create updates every year. Swift is a good example. Swift has been right. dramatically updated and improved over the years. Now, imagine if they'd come out with Swift 1.0 <laughs> and we were still using that, you know, six years later, no well, generics, nobody, no yeah, try, nobody no would try be catch, using it, right? Deal with it. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I haven't played with it that much, but I am excited by the idea of it. And I, unfortunately, what I've heard is that it's a little has some issues so far in the Monterey betas. So okay. I don't know. I, I haven't put the time into it yet, but I'm I'm hopeful that if it's not a home run for the debut with Monterey, that they will take it seriously, whatever feedback they get, and make it more of a home run for ne- next year, I guess. Yeah, like I really liked Apple Scripts, and I I built like a bunch of like I, I built did some work with Apple Script and script bridging too, so I could like write Swift code that would like talk to Keynote or Numbers, and it was fantastic. And then like. Like part of the problem too was the whole lockdown, locking down thing, you know, where they made it more secure, which like kind of makes sense. And we've talked about that before, but yep. like it just made doing anything with Apple script more and more difficult when you want to do an external Mac app. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's uh, on the Mac again, it's like uh, the sandbox has affordances for asking for permission to do scripting, but you have to ask for it on it target app by target app basis. So for instance, um, one of my apps, well, for instance, Mars edit has an ability to like open your post and edit it in BB edit. So BB edit is hard coded in my sandbox entitlements as an app that I can script with and then vice versa. BB edit lists me and it's entitlements. As far as I recall, it's like, but you have to make these arrangements with all of the apps you're going to conduct this automation dance with okay so but you know for instance like if you if you wanted to make an app that automates keynote stuff you could make a sandboxed app list keynote as a target of your scripting and i think apple would approve that 
mm-hmm. uh, in the in the Mac App Store, but you can't make an app that like allows the user to control an arbitrary presentation app. You know, right? You have to list them all. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? Um, I don't know. I'm just looking at our, we had a rough, a rough list of uh, notes here and I think we've covered a lot. So unless something here jumps out at you that you want to follow up any more on, it's been nice chatting. Yeah, it's been fantastic chatting. I have to say you're probably one of the most uh, helpful Mac developers out there whenever I have a technical question. So I, I really do appreciate that, uh, whether it's Twitter or one of our plethora of Slack workspaces. Um, I know COVID's made a lot, made me a lot more friendly with Slack lately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, Zoom too, for that matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're good. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the show. Where could people find you? Probably the best place to start is actually just redsweater.com. I finally, this past year, since we last chatted, I got redsweater.com. For the previous 20 years, I only had red-sweater.com. <laughs> so if you can spell the color red and you can color spell the uh, the article of clothing that in America we... Uh, call a sweater which is a jumper in the <laughs> in the uk i think um then you can go to my website redsweater.com and uh if you want to check me out on twitter daniel punk ass and come hunt us down on one of these slack groups and let's talk about mac programming it'll be fun thank you again daniel yep thanks people can find me on twitter at leo g Dion. my website is bright digit uh, please take some time to post reviewed on your podcast listener. And if you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe. Thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye. Right.